calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is of gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Take 15. Uh, today we're joined by author and economist Ambisa Moya. Uh, Demisa, thank you for joining us thank today. Thank you for hosting me. Absolutely. Recently, you wrote a book uh, titled Winner Take All, and it's about uh, China's uh, rapid growth and demand for resources globally. And uh, I'm curious what impact you see this phenomenon having on uh, commodity prices, geopolitical forces, and of course, access to resources going forward. My book, Winner Take All, um, is basically a detailed analysis of China's systematic and deliberate race for resources. This includes things like arable land, water, energy, and minerals. In order to really understand what I see as two big implications of China's race for resources, first of all, the pressures on increasing commodity prices, and second of all, the risks of uh, wars and conflicts based out of China's um, race for resources, I think it's important to put this in a global context. On the one hand, we have significant increases in demand emanating from population rises, from the significant rise in wealth around the world, but also from urbanization, which is a key pillar of particularly emerging markets um, policy. On the other hand, we have significant scarce, depleting, and finite constraints emanating from the supplies of water, energy, minerals, and, um, and, and land. And within this context, China has embarked on a very systematic and deliberate approach to secure natural resources. And this is something that we have not seen in the past, and arguably, she's the only country that is going about this in a very deliberate approach. My view is that alongside um, some of the forecasts that we've seen from the larger agencies, such as the IMF and World Bank and the OECD, I do believe that we'll see significant spikes in commodity prices in the decade to come, as well as large risks towards uh, conflict. Now, of course, China is a, a major player in the global markets. Um, but as you point out, uh, it's not just China and the other BRIC countries. It's uh, the rest of the developing markets are, are really coming to the fore as well. And uh, I believe the, the stat that you'd cited in some of your work is that uh, over the next uh, 20 years or so, they're going to have another 2 billion entrants to the global middle class. What impact do you see this cohort having um, on you know, all these issues going forward? So the importance of this rising middle class from the emerging markets, where 90% of the world's population lives today, um, is significant, primarily because they are undergoing an industrialization process of their own. They are getting more access to mobile telephony, all of which draws on um, natural resources. Um, they are demanding better quality foodstuffs, so moving away from things like wheat and grains um, to, towards more protein-based meats. Again, significant draw on natural resources. But they're demanding cars, they're demanding indoor plumbing, um, and they're also a whole host of white goods, such as washing machines um, and televisions in their homes, which are significantly correlated to improvements in living standards. And each of those and all of those things draw on natural resources. 
So as you think about the coming uh, resource scarcity, uh, what role do you think higher prices might play in taming demand going forward? And, and, and how might that stimulate innovation in the markets? So the idea of a reservation price, so a price at which people stop purchasing or using um, natural resources is something that's been quite popular, um, popularly argued in economics. Um, one of the things that we have seen with this increased shift of demand from the emerging markets is that that reservation price has become much higher. In other words, the appetite to consume resources at higher and higher commodity prices has increased. Let's take the case of oil. A barrel of oil for many decades from the 1970s hovered around $20 a barrel. But we've seen as high as $140 a barrel during the financial crisis, and now it's hovering at around $100 a barrel. The forecasts from large agencies such as the IEA and the IMF are that we should expect that oil prices will be hovering around $200 a barrel over the next decade. Um, this is largely because the emerging markets demand is providing a floor, a higher floor for natural resources as their demand continues to uh, increase. The issue around uh, technology innovations and the ability to provide substitutes is one which could provide some sort of a reprieve for much of this demand. But we don't see in the, in the, in, in the sort of interim short term um, enough innovation and R&D that could substantially abate some of the concerns that we have uh, emanating from increased commodity demand. Okay, um, so let's shift our uh, attention uh, specifically to China again. What do you think the social and political ramifications of an ascendant China might be, um, you know, particularly in some emerging markets? I know that um, they are, in a way, competing with organizations like the World Bank and the IMF and you know, creating their own deals and investments with uh, various countries. Uh, how do you see that playing out? So clearly China's sheer scale and appetite for natural resources but other goods and services also means that her, her ability to influence markets um, across the world, particularly in emerging markets, is significant. It's worth remembering that 70% across many of emerging markets, 70% of the population is under the age of 24. So these countries are desperately looking for food, um, but they're also looking for infrastructure, job creation, um, they're looking for trade and they're looking for significant investment. And these are things that China can provide. If you take the continent of Africa, for example, which has got about a billion people, one of the concerns there is that Africa, with all its natural resources and the fact that, China, that Africa remains the largest uh, place, the place with the largest untilled arable land, um, it still represents only 2% of world trade. You have China, on the other hand, with 1.3 billion people and 7% arable land, so desperately looking for food in order to continue to satiate its population at home. So there seems to be a natural synergy there for these countries to work together, the African countries with that of China. So the implications for China's continual growth um, has significant uh, imp implications for the emergence of not just African countries, but countries in South America and across the rest of the world. Right. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we learned in the financial crisis about China uh, or shortly thereafter uh, it came out that they actually have a whole lot more debt than they had previously disclosed, uh, thanks to the work of a uh, professor at Northwestern University. And uh, do you, what's your view on China's economic model? Do you think that model is sustainable, and what are the ramifications for you know, commodity consumption and all these other things, if not? 
It, uh, the question of China's model, I think, is a fascinating one. Uh, and in fact, if you, again, if you think about the world in global context, we have the United States, which has democracy as its political ethos, and it has private capitalism as its economic paradigm. Um, it's the largest economy in the world. The second largest economy in the world has deprioritized democracy, and it has state capitalism as its main economic engine. These two economies have the same Gini coefficient, which is a measure of income inequality. And as many forecasts now show, on a PPP basis, China will become the largest economy as early as 2016, so just three years from today. The question around China's role, therefore, is quite significant. Um, if you look across the world right now, and indeed in places like Europe and the United States, there is definitely an outcry and significant more pressure to adopt a more state-based approach to government and, and, gov and greater government intervention in many of the markets. So whether it's banking sector in, uh, in Europe or the government taking on the largest leading sec uh, role in the healthcare sector in the United States, um, there is clearly pressure for a more state-based uh, approach to, to intervention in these markets. Um, in that regard, um, the Chinese model is quite appealing for many countries around the emerging world that have to continue to create economic growth and significantly um, put a dent in poverty. They see China's model, which has moved 300 million people out of poverty in just 30 years, as an alternative worth exploring. Um, will there be challenges um, with the Chinese model? Quite clearly there are today, and they could continue to be so in the years to come. And in that sense, there is a deadweight loss to a state capitalist model. However, in the interim, in the very short term, in the myopic, uh, very myopic perspective, um, you can see the appeal of the Chinese model. Okay. So let's uh, shift our focus from uh, China and that as an emerging economy to Africa. And obviously, Africa, as you cited earlier, is an enormous country, you know, a huge number of people, or enormous continent mm -hmm. uh, with lots of countries yeah. and a huge number of people. And uh, how do you uh, think about uh, their readiness and willingness to accept uh, foreign capital and the, the liquidity of the markets? And, and are they at that point, that launching point, to really um, you know, sort of shed the past and embrace the future, so to speak? So there, I would argue that um, in the context of Africa and frontier markets more broadly, there are sort of three key areas that have emerged over the last decade. First of all is the macroeconomic story, which I think many of us are quite familiar with. This is the fact that uh, economic growth has, has seemed to, um, to gain momentum uh, recently. If you look at the IMF forecasts for Africa specifically, Africa will be the third fastest growing region this year um, with you know, nearly 6% uh, GDP ratios, which is really quite compelling given that in the 1980s and 1990s, Africa saw many significant uh, declines in economic growth um, across many countries. Um, so the growth story, both in terms of um, capital and labor, but also if you add in productivity, is quite compelling and therefore uh, very fundamentally strong for Africa. Um, the two areas that have tended not to be focused upon in terms of the markets are issues around risk and around liquidity. And in this regard, we're seeing that savvy investors are showing much more propensity and interest in the African markets, where there is significant opportunity to generate um, risk-adjusted uh, non-correlated uh, returns. Um, if I may, let me say a few more words about this. In the context of risk, traditionally, people have viewed Africa as very uncertain. Um, the delineation between risk and uncertainty now, which is the idea that risk is easily uh, measurable and can be hedged, 
um, is something that is quite distinct from that of uncertainty, which is not measurable and is very difficult to hedge. Um, we're seeing a lot more instruments, a lot more opportunities for investment, but also the, the, dis the discourse around risk versus uncertainty in Africa has become much more mature. And that the ability to, um, to be able to calculate and to measure and analyze risk means that there's much more opportunity for investment. And unsurprisingly, we've seen a lot of significant inflows into the continent over the past decade. Um, in context of liquidity, we now have a situation where about 90 countries in Africa have credit ratings. Um, they have about 20 countries that have uh, stock exchanges. And this, again, provides a support to the idea of, the market, of market development and attracts much more capital into the continent. Um, we're seeing the significant investment, not just in the private equity markets, but also the public markets, um, which has supported many of the fast-growing industries, such as banking and finance, but also, more recently, things like logistics and consumer goods are also gaining momentum. Right. Uh, well, Dambisa, you've covered uh, a lot of ground here. I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you. Uh, for coming to join us today. And thank you for joining us as well. Uh, it's another episode of uh, Take 15. Uh, be sure to check us out on uh, cfainstitute.org for all of our content, as well as the Enterprising Investor blog. Uh, thank you. Copyright 2013 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.